WNYC is teaming up with NPR to bring you a new daily podcast, Consider This. We'll bring you the biggest news stories and what's happening in our community to help you make sense of the day. Subscribe to Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The First American by Laurie Siegel, which was published in The New Yorker in May of 1983. Ilka looked at Fishcouple. Only a persevering spirit could have parlayed that pure skin and wonderful black hair and those sweet, clever eyes into such dowdiness. The story was chosen by Alice Madison, who's the author of four story collections and six novels. Her nonfiction book, The Kite and the String, How to Write with Spontaneity and Control and Live to Tell the Tale, comes out this month. Hi, Alice. Welcome. Hi, Deborah. Thank you. So what made you pick uh, Laurie Siegel's The First American to read today? I, I As soon as I was asked, I knew I wanted to read that story. I... I I remember, I think I remember reading it in the magazine in 1983, and then shortly after that read the novel that it's a part of. I always loved the story. I just, I think it's marvelous. I didn't really remember why I loved it until I reread it, Mm -hmm. Um, but I knew that I did. And did you reread the novel? I did. Yes. And did it stand up in memory in the way it it had when you first looked at it? Yes. It may be better. (laughs) I think I read it. I think this was my third time reading it. And this time, the novel was even stronger than before. It's a lot about black people and white people getting along with each other. And that seemed particularly relevant these days. And it's particularly well done. Mm -hmm. Well, when when the novel came out in, in 1985, the New York Times wrote, Though her first American does not have epic sweep and physical bulk, though it was not written by a man, though its main characters are a number of black Americans and a handful of Jewish refugees in New York City, admittedly not the real America, Laurie Siegel may have come closer than anyone to writing the great American novel. So do you agree with that? I do. I do. I think it's interesting that when the opening pages of the novel appeared in The New Yorker, it was called The First American. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether she ever intended that to be the, the title of the novel. Her first American is the novel. It's true that this is Ilka's first American. It's, it, this, the story is about the first person she meets in America and talks to at any length. But I think calling it the first American suggests something broader and maybe bolder. Mm-hmm. What is it that stands out for you the most in Siegel's work in general? The first Siegel book I ever read was one of her children's books, Tell Me a Mitzi. Mm-hmm. A friend gave it to me when my first son was a, a baby. And I loved the humor and the almost childlike directness of mm-hmm. the writing. It's, okay, this is what, this is what it is. This is way, the way things are, if that's good good. If it's bad, bad. There's that feeling all the way through, as far as I can see, all of her work, a kind of unashamed willingness to look at things as they are and describe what they're like. Right. Whether whether that would be trivial to other people, whether whether it would be tragic, whether it would be embarrassing, whatever. Right. There's a certain deadpan quality, even when, yes. even when she's writing about tragedy. Yes. And it, 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 it makes everything emotional. It makes it emotional in the deepest sense. It's sort of the moment-by-moment experience of this particular person. Mm -hmm. So you're always inside somebody. And so much of the story is is like that, is about the moment-by-moment mental experience of the characters. Mm -hmm. So the story, which became the the opening of the novel, um, is set in 1951, and it involves uh, Ilka Weisnicks, who's a recent immigrant to New York and an Austrian Jewish refugee. Do you think that there's anything else people should know before they hear it? I think it explains itself pretty clearly. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll talk some more after the reading. And now here's Alice Madison reading The First American by Laurie Siegel. The First American. 
Ilka Weisnicks had been three months in this country when she went west and discovered her first American sitting on a stool in a bar in the desert across from the railroad. He bought her a whiskey and asked her what in the name of the blessed Jehoshaphat she was doing in Cowtown, Nevada. Nevada, Ilka said. I have believed I am being in Utah, isn't it? Utah, the face of the big American turned a sick gray color. Where the hell am I? he asked the barman. Hagen, replied the barman, swiping a dish towel at a glass beer mug. Ass end of no place, Nevada. Aha, uh-huh, so, Ilka sipped her whiskey and, hiding her smile inside her glass, said, I do not believe. What don't you believe? asked the American. That I sit in Utah. Nevada, the man said. I do not believe Nevada, Utah, America. Ilka was 21. It had taken her more than a decade to get from Vienna to New York. She had left in 1938 when Hitler came. The Austrian Weissnixes had known so little of their relations, the Litvak Fischkoppels. Ilka had been unaware that she had an American cousin until some time after the end of the war, when the cousin traced Ilka's whereabouts and sent her a visa and an air ticket. Fischkoppel had come into New York to meet the new refugee at Idlewild. Ich muss nehmen ein Examen. Ich muss gehen back to school, shouted Fischkoppel across the roar and shriek of the subway that was carrying them uptown. Ihr uh, will stay in mine apartment in New York, okay? Excuse, please? Ilka had shouted back. I'm sorry, my horrible Yiddish, yelled Fischkoppel and hit herself in the head. Yiddish, shouted Ilka, lighting on the only word she understood. By us in Vienna. Has nobody speaking Yiddish outside the Polishan? What? hollered Fischkoppel, and they laughed and turned out both palms of their hands, understanding each other to mean too noisy, one can't even talk. Fischkoppel's small Upper West Side apartment had the simple layout of a dumbbell. The front door opened into the middle of a narrow foyer with a room at each end. One for you, said Fischkoppel, and one for your mother when we get her to America. I don't know where my mother is. I don't know if she lives, said Ilka. She looked around at Fishcouple's possessions. Each object was out of harmony with every other in a way for which the laws of probability did not account. Ilka looked at Fishcouple. Only a persevering spirit could have parlayed that pure skin and wonderful black hair and those sweet, clever eyes into such dowdiness. Look at the time, cried Fishcouple. Here is a dictionary. Here is the map of the subway. This is where you get off for the employment agency. Here's where they give English classes. Are you going to manage? Thanks, said Ilka. The butcher on the corner of Broadway speaks German. The shul is two blocks that way. Excuse me? Here is my number. Call me. I'll call you. I'll come in for the day as soon as my exams are over. Will you be all right? Yes, thanks, said Ilka. Don't, cried Fishgubble. Don't thank me. Minutes after Fishkoppel had run to catch the train back to New Haven, Ilka took the elevator down and burst into the streets of New York, which looked like the streets of Ilka's childhood Vienna, the same flat, staid, gray facades, except that here, right in front of her, walked a real American couple having an American conversation. Ilka ran to catch up and walked close behind them. She understood the old man saying, "'Because I wear proper shoes in which a person can walk.'" The old woman said, because you don't have bunions, the man said, because I wear proper shoes. And Ilka recognized that it was German they were speaking with the round Viennese vowels cushioned between relaxed Viennese consonants. When Ilka got back to the apartment, the telephone was ringing for Fischkoppel. Would Fischkoppel collect on the sixth floor for the United Negro College Fund? I will collect. I am the cousin from Fischkoppel, said Ilka who wanted to get a look into, to get inside American homes. The nameplate outside apartment 6A said, Wolfgang Plotschek. He handed her 50 cents through the cracked door. While 6B went to look for change, Ilka put her head inside the foyer and saw the little green marble boy extracting the same splinter from his foot on the same tree stump on the same round lace doily on which he had sat in Ilka's mother's foyer in Vienna. The woman came back. Nix, nothing, she said. It did her grief, but her man was not to house. 6C was Fischkoppel, and 6D would not open. The voice through the peephole came from Berlin. 
It did her grief also, but her sister had a stroke and was to bed. How? Ilka asked the woman at the employment agency when she told Ilka to go away and practice her English. With whom shall I practice when you are the only American I met in New York? The only others that I met in my English class are yet other outlanders, which know always only yet other outlanders, which know yet lesser English as I. The woman on the other side of the desk drew her head back from the assault of Ilka's complaining. She was a fat woman with a lot of corseted and useless bosom. She looked as if there was some complaining she might do, give her half a chance. New York, she finally said to Ilka, is not America, like all you people always think. The next time Fishcouple came in to see how Ilka was managing, Ilka complained to her that New York was not America. Fishcouple frowned, did some mental arithmetic, and offered Ilka the week's trip west. Fishcouple returned to New Haven, and Ilka went west. She practiced her English with the train conductor. He leaned over the back of the seat in front of Ilka and asked her to guess how long he had been on this Denver-Los Angeles run. Excuse me? Ilka smiled the self-conscious smile she knew from her mirror and regretted. It exposed her two long front teeth with a little gap between and made her look, she believed, like a friendly village simpleton. She was a thin girl. In certain lights, her hair matched the color of her eyes, which Ilka thought of as khaki. She smiled apologetically and sweetly at the round, red-faced conductor. He looked like a healthy old baby. He held up three left and two right fingers. Thirty-two years. Aha, said Ilka. Know it like, he pointed to the inside of his pocket, like the, and he held up the palm of his hand and pointed at it. I'll be back, he promised. Ilka looked out at land as level as the primordial water before the creation of breath disturbed its surface, uninterrupted by any object, man-made or natural, as far as the ruler-straight horizon, except outside the window on her left, where a grid of apartment buildings formed a small square city whose near perimeter coincided with the railroad platform. The train stopped when it had aligned Ilka with Main Street, at the far end of which stood a mountain, like a giant purple ice cream cone turned upside down on the perfectly flat world. Ilka wanted somebody to laugh with, to turn to and say, I don't believe this. She might have imagined that she had imagined this Atlantis onto the desert floor, but for the details, which were not in her experience to engender, Bars, bowling alleys, barbershops, numberless eating places with neon signs that ran and jumped and stopped and switched from pastel greens to pale yellows to pinks leached out by the tail end of daylight. Ilka's conductor returned. He multiplied his ten fingers by thrusting them into Ilka's face nine separate times. A 90-minute stopover. He handed her down the steps. And that was how Ilka Weisnicks from Vienna came to stand in the middle of the New World. Ilka thought she was in Utah, and she thought Utah was dead in the heart of America. Ilka was very excited. She ran up the platform until it stopped across from the long, low building which formed the northwest corner of the square little town. The building was made of a rosy, luminescent brick and quivered in the blue haze of the oncoming night. It levitated, its classic windows and square white letters saying, American Glue Incorporated, moved Ilka with a sense of beauty so out of proportion with its object, she recognized euphoria. It knocked out her common sense of time. Afraid of being left behind, but more afraid that she might miss what more there might be to be seen, Ilka turned and ran close alongside the train until the platform stopped across from the shack which held the northeast end of town down upon the desert the way one of those little gummed corners fixes your snapshot in place on the page of a photograph album. The shack had a roof like a cocked hat slipped down over one eye. A neon sign said, la and eats. With the reluctance of someone who sticks a foot into an alien element, Ilka stepped off the platform onto the dirt road, 
crossed to the other side, and with a palpitating heart, depressed the handle of the door. The thin man behind the bar went on wiping a glass with an agitated white dishcloth, but the elderly American swiveled on his bar stool to see who had come in. He was a very large, very stout man with grizzled hair, cut peculiarly short, and flattened against the big skull in a way the girl did not understand. His skin had a yellow hue. The nose was flat, the mouth wide like a frog's Ilka would have thought if it had not been for a look about him of weight, of weightiness. Like a Roman senator, thought Ilka. Feeling herself looked at, Ilka had ducked into the booth nearest the door. By the time she raised her self-conscious smile, the big American had returned to his conversation with the barman. There were women who got looked at longer. Ilka knew that. Anyway, he was an older man, and what Ilka had come west for was American conversation. Ilka listened and thought the barman said, coming down cats and dogs, but I mean something fierce, and thinking she hadn't been listening properly, she listened harder. The barman said, this kid I knew in high school's dad is in a cab, coming down Lex, I think it was. The man on the bar stool said, this is in New York, which Ilka understood. She felt encouraged and leaned closer and listened. The barman said, where else is there? Guess the brakes quit on the guy, this kid's dad. He lost his thumb, busted both legs, left side of his face is all chewed up, and this pip of a shyster out of nowhere is running alongside the stretcher, says he can get him a lump sum in compensation, which is what I'm telling you is what you have to have once in your lifetime give you an opportunity. Ilka was trying to connect shyster, the English cognate, presumably, of the German scheissen, and lump, as in a mattress, plus some, the mathematical result of totting up, and she had missed everything the barman said after that. She forgot to listen and studied the red plastic booth she sat in. Ilka thought that the back seats of two automobiles had been taken out and placed face to face. Three booths times two back seats in each made six red automobiles. The barman said, Got the wife to sue for deprivation of sexual excess or whatever. Access, suggested the older man on the stool. You name it, he sued for it. The barman was coming to round the bar and walking toward Ilka, saying, Physical, tormental, anguish, diminished reproductivity. What'll it be? He asked Ilka. Excuse, please, said Ilka, and smiled at him with her apologetic teeth and shook her head. I cannot yet so well English. The barman, who seemed worn to bone and nerve by a chronic high of exasperation, picked a shred of plastic off the flaking red seat while his foot kicked the center leg to see if the table held. He raised his chin like a dog about to howl and said, You want a drink? Please, coffee, said Ilka. Coffee, howled the barman in a voice outside the human range of sound. He walked back around the bar and disappeared through a door into a region beyond Ilka's sight and outside the range of her imagination. She pictured a blackness out of which the barman's voice went on with what he had been telling the man on the bar stool. This kid's dad comes out the hospital, has lost his hearing in one ear, or wishes he lost it is what he used to tell us kids so he wouldn't hear this noise all the time like someone pissing inside his ear loud like Niagara. Jesus, the man on the stool said. That could drive a man to drink. Only thing could drown it out was trumpets turned with the volume all the way up. See, said the barman, this is hi-fi coming in. This guy, he buys every damn book, reads up in the magazines, and goes into audio with his lump sum in compensation and makes a mint, owns his own home in Bay's head. But you don't get a lump sum, said the barman, coming out with Ilka's cup of coffee. You don't get an opportunity. I don't care what anybody is going to tell you. And that's true, too, said the stout older man. He raised his voice to the tenor pitch that best carried it into the booth by the door, where the young blonde sat and watched him. The problem, as I see it, is how you're going to put your idea over. My idea, said the barman. You want me to introduce it in the United Nations for you? Ilka was surprised at the high, hilarious note coming from the weighty-looking older man. Or were you thinking in terms of an amendment to the Bill of Rights? Was I thinking, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men have the unalienable right to a lump sum. Once in your lifetime, said the barman, is all I'm saying to you. See if I understand you now. Is this for white only or Negro as well? 
Listen, I ain't prejudiced like your local cowboys. I'm from New York, said the barman. Ain't I standing here talking to you like a person? You want, I'll make you a sandwich. Jesus God, the man on the stool said gaily. Imagine every one of us black sons of a gun going to have an equal opportunity to get our thumbs, legs, and eardrums busted, same as any white man in the land. Let me check this out with you. Everybody has to first get pretty much chewed up, is what you're saying. That's what it's compensation for, the way I figure it. You don't get something for nothing. But how it is now, you get nothing, period. It's an idea, said the man on the stool, that will revolutionize the economy. It is? It will? The barman looked nervous. Sure, the man on the stool said. He crossed one ankle over the other, affecting a quarter turn in Ilka's direction. Say you take the Social Security money for the year X, and instead of pissing it away on the poor, the old, and the sick, you divvy it up. Let's say 3000 bucks apiece to every baby born that same year, black and white, and stick with me here. The government invests each baby's 3000 at, say, 5% till the babies get to be 29. Or would you say 35? 35 has more horse sense, said the barman. Okay, now, said the man on the stool. When the babies are 35, they cut off their thumbs, break their legs, pierce their eardrums, and give each and every one of them the lump sum of... He patted his breast pocket, took out an envelope, and said, You got a pencil there? Thank you. 3,000 at 5% times 35 compounded, the man on the stool did arithmetic for a while, dollars 15,760, he said triumphantly. The barman looked agitated. And the poor old sick folks? What poor old sick folks? cried the man on the stool. They got their lumps when they were 35 and made a mint. They own their own homes, Negroes, whites, everybody, in Bay's head. I guess, said the barman. Elka had stopped listening. She studied the expanse of the older man's tweed back. It was an autumnal mixture of heather flecked with rust, mauve, green. Ilka had observed that same easy angle of the wrist of the hand which held the cigarette in other men, and women, too. She thought it connoted the carnal know-how she despaired of for herself. Ilka could see the man's tongue laughing inside his enormous mouth. She had never seen a grown person laugh so loudly for such a long time, with the mouth so wide open. Now he raised his eloquent right hand. He beckoned. Ilka turned to see who might have come in the door behind her, but there was no one to claim the gesture, and she turned back with a conscious smile, trusting it to double for an acknowledgment, in case he meant her, and a general complacence if he hadn't. You ever get yours? The man asked the barman. Worse luck said the barman. I was in construction, damn near killed in a cave-in. Man, what a mess. See now, here's what I'm telling you. When they used to give me my 30 bucks Saturday night, by Monday morning, like you said, I pissed it away. What else is there? But you put 5,000 smackaroos into my hand. I'm a capitalist. I'm going to hang on to every lousy buck. I'm going to make something out of myself. What did you do? I read where they were building this four-lane highway, and I come out here. I see the surveyors with my own eyes, outside the window. I figure I buy this place cheap, the big money wants to be on Maine, and do it up nice, like New York. You can't tell anymore now, but 10 years ago, this place was, I mean, sharp. I figure every one of the fellers be coming in here for his breakfast, lunch, home away from home, and booze it up nights for the three or whatever years it's going to take them to build me a highway up to my front door. I sell out at a price, go back, and open a classy place on Third Avenue. How can I lose? What happened? The man on the stool asked. They built the highway four miles the other side of town is what happened. You going to sell out then? To who? You going to be fool enough to take my monkey and put it on your back? Are you? No, you are not. You got the custom from the railroad, the man said. Oh, right, the barman said. There's the 10.45 a.m. Denver, L.A., and the 12.15 L.A. Denver, and the 5.40 you got off of, 
and the 8 p.m. the lady came on, he indicated Ilka, listening in her booth. Maybe a couple rednecks drop in for a beer and put two nickels in the juke. You want another bourbon? Maybe the lady will join me. He did mean me, thought Ilka, gratified. It was me, he beckoned. Will you have a drink? Thanks. No, said Ilka. I must soon back in the train. Thanks. But the man had risen and was standing with a nice formality next to his stool. It took Ilka time to extricate her feet from under the table and walk across the floor. The man waited until she had seated herself before resuming his own stool. He offered her a cigarette. Thanks. No. Ilka did not smoke. What would she like to drink? Ilka did not drink. No, thanks. Liqueur makes me, how do you say it in English, sich übergeben, to overgive the self? You, you can maybe German? A little Swahili, the man offered. Excuse, please? I don't know German. I'm sorry. Ilka did a charade, and he said, Liquor makes you throw up. No, it doesn't. To the barman, he said, the lady will have a black and white diluted with a little water. Start her off nice and easy. I'll teach you how to drink, he told Ilka. You are living here? Ilka asked him. Christ, no, the man said. He told Ilka that he was en route from California to New York for a brand new start and had stopped off to have himself one last big bender. Speak, please, slower, said Ilka. I'm going to tie one on, explained the man, and it was here he had asked Ilka what in the name of the blessed Jehoshaphat she was doing in Cowtown, Nevada, which Ilka had mistaken and was, for the years to come, to persist in mistaking for Utah. Ilka said, I search for Americans. Except the woman from the employment office, you were my first real. Real? The man leaned his ear toward her. A real American, said Ilka. Of the second class, said the big man. Ilka shook her head and said, I think every moment I am understanding lesser and lesser. It was here that Carter Bayou introduced himself. He said, I'm a wonderful teacher. My name is Ilonka Weisnix, said Ilka. And I want to learn, she made a large, inclusive gesture. This all, they shook hands, he said. Let me buy you a sandwich. What do you like? Ilka smiled inside her glass and said, I cannot the names of the American sandwich. You make Rubens? The man asked the barman. Do fish swim, is what Ilka thought the barman replied before he disappeared back into his private darkness. You don't look like a teacher, said Ilka and blushed. She thought she was flirting. The man regarded Ilka with his bright brown stare and asked, Like what do I look? That, said Ilka, is what I am not understanding. When I walk on Broadway and see an old Viennese pair, I can understand already from behind what the man has worked in Vienna, how it looked in their room. Ilka stopped, appalled at the number and complication of the English sentences ahead. Go on, the man said. She shook her head. Ilka meant that she recognized the proportions, height by width, of the old man's Jewish back, which fit and failed to fit in the same places into the same suit Ilka's father wore to the shop. The fabric that upholstered the fat old wife was the navy cotton patterned with the same full-blown roses, bows, garlands, and violins of Great Aunt Molly's Sunday dresses. Those German pre-war cottons were like iron and had outlasted Great Aunt Molly, as well as Ilka's father and three aunts, five uncles, and two of the cousins who used to gather for Aunt Molly's afternoons of café und Gugelhupf. Aunt Molly's oversized table had stood square in the middle of the room. The tile stove in the left corner gave off too much heat. The walls were dark and striped, the curtains lace, and the drapes flowered and fringed with black wooden beads, which little Elka lying on the turkey carpet, cozy, too hot, bored, more than half asleep, had pulled off one after the other. Aunt Molly had sat drinking coffee and watched Ilka. Ilka shook her head and said, It is too complicated to tell it, but I look at you and... Yes. Ilka shook her head. She meant that she did not understand his hair, 
that the size of his mouth and his laughter did not go with the urbane bend of his wrist and the way he crossed his ankles, and that the luxurious tweed of his jacket contradicted his wide nose and mouth. Ilka said, take, for example, these two Americans, which are coming in by the door. She swiveled on her stool and watched the newcomers settle into the booth she had recently vacated. They called for Larry. Couple beers, Larry. One was a little shorter, with a big chest, the other a few years younger, perhaps. Both were in their thirties, of middling height, and wore, it seemed to Ilka, their undershirts. They had ruddy arms and blunt, round heads, and they looked underdone, as if they had been taken out prematurely and put down in the world. Ilka said, I look, and I am seeing two men, but I cannot imagine what they are making for a living, or how dress their wives, or how it looks in their rooms. The one who was perhaps younger shouted, Larry, what's with Larry? And stuck his head out of the booth. He looked around the room, and the American on the stool said, keep talking, in a different, high voice Ilka had not heard before. She turned to see what had happened. Nothing had happened. There was nothing different in the way he sat, with his ankles crossed, his right hand around the glass on the bar. He had not moved so much as his eyes to take in the newcomers, but sat very still. Only his left arm, pivoting at the shoulder, brought the cigarette to his mouth and took it away again. In his new voice, pitched in the high, thin register of the castrato, he said, I'll buy you dinner on Main Street. Oh, but, said Ilka, Larry makes already our sandwich, isn't it? And here came Larry, with two foaming mugs, which he carried around the bar and across the floor. He set them on the table between the two men and slid into the booth next to the one with the big chest. This aborted an unexplained sandwich, Ilka laid away in the patient back part of the mind where a child keeps things it doesn't know what to make of, and other things it doesn't know, it doesn't understand. There they lie forgotten, but available to join with future information that will elucidate some, but not all. The man on the stool smoked his cigarette down to a nubbin, then took his wallet from his breast pocket. He said, we leave separately. Excuse me? Go out the door, turn left, walk to Main Street, and wait for me. I can wait here, said Ilka. The man did not say anything. Ilka looked at him. Was it that his neck had thickened or shortened or withdrawn into his shoulders? Had the ears retracted? The head and shoulders had streamlined. Some outside pressure, failing to eliminate his person, had compacted it and reduced its size without affecting its bulk. He looked like a high-caliber torpedo. Ilka saw what she saw and stored it away in her mind. She said, yes, so then I will wait at the corner. He did not raise his head. He was busy with his wallet. Ilka collected her things and rose. We are not all white, was what she thought one of the men in the booth had said. She stopped and looked in, and the man with the chest was looking her straight in the eye. It was to her he was talking. Ilka said, excuse me. The other, younger man, too, was looking at her. Ilka said, I am new in America and cannot so well understand. She smiled her sweet, apologetic smile and leaned closer to listen harder, and the man, looking her in the eye and enunciating very clearly, said it again. We are not all white. Ilka smiled. She shook her head. Either one of you fellows once in your lifetime got a lump sum. Did you ever have an opportunity? The barman was asking the two men as Ilka walked out of the door. This end of town was deserted and dark, the way the blacked-out wartime cities of Europe had been dark, except for that same curious pink glow Ilka had observed in the night sky over Manhattan. She imagined that it emanated from the noisy neon lights of every Times Square or Main Street, floated upward, and spread like a comforter of rosy and possibly noxious haze over America. Ilka walked to Main Street and waited. Presently, the big American from the bar stood at the curb beside her. He kept a slice of the night air between them. The purple mountain had been assumed into the blackness, which had pepped up the colored lights. 
Over the restaurant across the street, a blue cow blinked glamorous Disney lashes once, twice, and went out. The blue cow spelled itself in yellow capitals. Ilka felt excited and hilarious. On both thronging sidewalks, everyone was male and young. I don't believe. I think this I have imagined, Ilka laughed. She turned to the American. He was looking at her. He looked deliberately across the street and back at Ilka and said, We're standing here side by side, but how do I know what you see? This, Ilka said with a sensation of bliss, is what I am meaning. She was afterward to identify it as the moment in which she fell in love. It coincided with a break in the traffic and his first slight touch under her elbow, an anachronistic courtesy that assumes the woman cannot step down into the street or make it safely to the other side without the man's supporting hand. He withdrew it as soon as he had helped her up the curb. Where would you like to eat? I would like that you are choosing. Right, he said. He walked her past the blue cow and past the bar and beef. Are you afraid, he asked her. No, said Ilka, because I am with you. With me, ah, the big American said, walking past the steak and swill and past Harry's hash, but at the Versailles, no better, it seemed to Ilka, and no worse than the others, he opened and held the door. Here by the window is good for looking, said the insatiable Ilka. But the man walked her past the window table, past a second and a third empty table, and made a U-turn around a table from which three men had raised their eyes. The three men watched a large, middle-aged, yellow-skinned Negro march out the door, followed by a thin, young blonde. Back in the street, he asked Ilka if she was hungry. Not so hungry, said Ilka. They walked past Harry's hash, and he turned and looked behind him. Ilka turned also. She said, I don't understand what for men are all these. Men, said the man. They passed the stake and swill. Good enough fellows, as fellows go. Care for their kids, satisfy their wives some of the time, do their work well as can be expected and pay their taxes mostly, go to church or not, and will string me up as soon as look at me. String you? Ilka did not understand him. She said, I think soon I must again instep in the train, isn't it? I'll wait with you, said the man. They walked past the bar and beef, past the blue cow. He held her elbow across the dirt road and assisted her up onto the platform. Aren't you afraid of me? The big American asked Ilka as they walked alongside the empty, darkened train. Ilka thought about this and said, No. They sat down on a bench underneath one of the half-dozen lamps, weak and unsteady as gaslight, that made no inroads upon the darkness. I would have liked to make love to you, said the American gloomily. Ilka, who was not in the habit of receiving propositions, understood this one as a courtesy, intended as a compliment. The man said, When a man hasn't so much as managed to buy a woman dinner, it's not conducive. I'm not so hungry, said Ilka. Well, 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 the American said. I owe you. They exchanged addresses. He wrote Fishcouple's telephone number into a well-worn, leather-bound address book. On the corner of an envelope, he wrote the name of the hotel in New York where, he said, he used to live and might take a room, if they had one, until he figured out what the hell he was doing. There is my conductor, said Ilka. When do you get back to town? Sunday, said Ilka. Monday, I must go again to, I call it the agency of unemployment. Ah, yes, indeed, the man said. He handed her up the steps into the train. When Ilka turned to say goodbye, she saw the droop of his face and the sad expanse of his cheek grew large, larger, blurred. It filled Ilka's eyes, and Ilka's lips touched and depressed the male softness of his flesh, while her mind went scampering after something funny in English with which to unsay what she was doing here. 
Ilka laughed and said, This also I do not believe. You, I know, I imagined, and withdrew her head to the distance at which the features of his face resumed their surface and outline with a difference. His wide-open, unblinking eyes looked without a hint of irony and shameless with emotion full into Ilka's face. Ilka ducked up the stairs, found her seat, and let the window down. When had the platform filled with so many people saying their goodbyes and getting onto the train? It took her a moment to identify the back of the American from the bar stool, already walking away. That was Alice Madison reading The First American by Laurie Siegel. The story appeared in The New Yorker in May of 1983 and became part of Siegel's novel, Her First American, which was published by Knopf in 1985 and reissued as an ebook by Open Road in 2014. The New Yorker Festival is back, and it's our 21st year. Undeterred by COVID, we're coming to you virtually with a fantastic lineup, and you can enjoy it all without even putting on your shoes. Chris Rock is joining us, Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin too, and a performance and conversation with Fiona Apple. There's also Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Eric Holder, and many more. You can find out everything that's happening and buy tickets at newyorker.com slash festival. Again, that's newyorker.com slash festival. See you there. So Alice, Ilka, Ilka has escaped the Holocaust without her parents. She's landed in New York where she knows almost no one except this strange cousin who keeps dashing in and out. She doesn't know where her mother is. She doesn't even know if her mother's alive. Given all of that, she seems remarkably cheerful. She's, she's almost euphoric. How do you explain that state? She seems to be someone who responds to exactly what is going on at that time. And whatever else is going on matters, too. When her cousin with the wonderful name Fishcouple <laughs> says, your mother can stay in this room when she, when she comes... Ilka immediately says that she doesn't know whether her mother is still alive. Meanwhile, she wants she wants to, to learn everything. She wants to see everything. And she has an opinion about everything. And she looks around at everything. And we get throughout the story, we get the weather and the buildings and Carter Bayou himself from the viewpoint of this newcomer who does not know often what she's looking at or what she's listening to. So I think she's, she's someone who just has so much excitement about the nature of the world that it keeps her going even when there's lots to be upset about. Mm-hmm. I would think it's it's striking, especially when she's knocking on doors and collecting for the yes uh, the charity. That she's, she's not shy at <laughs> all. I would I would never have done that. <laughs> I know it's amazing, but then she sees a little statuette that that was in her in yes. her mother's home you would think someone in this in this state in the state of mind would you know break down burst into tears somehow she's just kind of excited by that she's she's she feels at home yes she's always she's always trying to figure out all through the story what is implied by what she sees and when she sees something familiar like the the back of the the man walking in the street, she knows what is implied by that, and what if she extrapolated in all directions what she would get to. But when she looks around at the people in Nevada or Utah, wherever she's in Nevada, <laughs> in Nevada, she doesn't know what is implied by what she sees, and of course, she doesn't recognize the racism. She doesn't even recognize race. That's true. Um, she do, yeah. She doesn't. She doesn't recognize what Carter is. There's that moment where she says he has kind of yellow skin and he has these strange features. His mouth is large, and she she can't put those things together or put a name on them. Well, how do you explain that sort of blindness? Well, she's not an American, so she mm-hmm. doesn't have a, an American heightened consciousness of race. And as children don't notice race, I think she's more like a child in that way. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think small children notice 
notice race, or certainly can't put it into categories. Yeah. It's interesting that coming from where she's coming from, she obviously knows something about discrimination and, and social stigma, and yet she doesn't pick up on it relative to, to Carter. No. No. And f- in fact, later in the novel, she she still doesn't know. She begins to suspect that maybe he's a Negro. But she doesn't think she should ask. And then uh, finally he says something that makes it clear that he is. And she's quite surprised. But it's it's a ways beyond the, the, this part of the story. She really doesn't know at this point. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure it's even occurred to her here. Yeah. What do you think she makes of, of what how the men around her are reacting to him? She seems completely mystified. Yeah, but yet she doesn't ask. She doesn't ask. She ha- it, There's that wonderful sentence, which is in parentheses, in which she doesn't understand why the sandwich never got made. Mm-hmm. And she stores it in the back of her mind the way a child does as part of something that doesn't make any sense to the child and that may later be explained and maybe not. And this one, I think the sentence says that it never it never was quite explained. I'm not sure we fully understand why the barman doesn't make the sandwich. Yeah, I wasn't sure about that either. Are we supposed to think that once the white men come in, he can't be seen serving food to a black man? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, in a way, we're we're also blind because here we are 70 years later or 75 yeah. years later yeah. and... and we don't have the same signifiers. But I think it's interesting how how fragmentary Ilka's vision is. You know, there's this way that she sees, mm-hmm. she even sees the features on his face kind of separately. Mm-hmm. And then in that last scene when she leans in to kiss him and he he becomes so blurry. Well, why do you think, why do you think her sight is failing her? Isn't it just that she is responding so particularly to things without sorting them out mm-hmm. as though you, you well I, I sometimes have trouble seeing my myself and I'll, I'll see oh that's red and that's blue next to it and that's a blue triangle but I, I need to get closer before I understand mm-hmm. what the objects are and it's as though she's she, she doesn't know enough to put things together yeah, it's 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 fascinating to me. I mean, everything is seen very literally and, yes. and separately. She's very literal-minded. And I think, I don't know, Laurie Siegel, but I think she must be a literal-minded person. <laughs> and Tell Me a Mitzi is, is the, the, the children's, one of the children's books that I have read many, many times, is extremely literal-minded. And one of the reasons I think it works as a children's book is that it just goes from from fact to fact. She did this and this and this and this and this and this and this, and it doesn't skip anything. Well, we know that that uh, her first American is quite an autobiographical book. Now, Siegel left Vienna in the same year as Ilka, and she, she went to England on the Kindertransport. There was one interview where she said about that. One, one thing to do when you leave your parents is to howl with horror. The other thing is to not mm-hmm. howl and think, wow, I'm going to England. This will be an adventure, mm-hmm. which is the one I did. And, of course, that seems to be the way Ilka is taking yes. life. Yes. And, and this book, I think, took, Siegel will say she took, it took her 18 years to write it. And she said it just took her a very long time to figure out how to write Ilka. She said, at first I had a widow with children, then a young divorcee. I couldn't get her until I let go and put myself in there, a younger and more naive version. Hmm. She says, obviously, I was trying not to put myself in there. I was trying to replace myself with something else. I didn't manage. So there's a huge amount of her in Ilka, but she's kind of taken away some of her knowledge when she came to the U.S. She was fluent in English. But one thing that that's interesting to know about Siegel's history is that she had spent these years in England going through various sort of foster families, and she wrote an earlier book about that, and she was very good there at studying the kind of sociology of the families she was boarded with. And here, all of that kind of sociological understanding seems to have vanished, and she's sort of the proverbial Martian trying to figure out American culture (laughs) or something. Ilka remains a a person who doesn't quite get things. I mean, throughout the novel, 
She doesn't know how to cook, and there are occasions when it would help if she'd do a little cooking, and she just doesn't know how to cook. And I didn't go back and check this, but I think that in Shakespeare's Kitchen, which is also about Ilka many years later, I think she still isn't cooking and still (laughs) is apologizing for not knowing how to cook. I, I can't swear that, but I think it's true. What do you think makes Ilka fall in love with Carter? It's that moment where he he taps her on the elbow to help her across the street, and, and she's in love. Well, she says that he can see her, but he doesn't know what she sees. He knows that people are personal and individual. And that's kind of what she is trying to get other people to understand when she keeps saying, I do not believe, I do not believe. I think she means that she is having trouble with just what we've been saying, having having trouble processing everything that's going on. And he acknowledges that. He says, you have a mind and I know it thinks and I don't know what it's thinking. I don't know. You have a viewpoint and I don't know what you see which is the most wonderful. I think it's very sexy. <laughs> it's the most wonderful <laughs> thing to say to someone else. You know, you, you're real. You, you have your own viewpoint. And, of course, he does too. He fully understands other people. And in some respects, they're quite similar. And I, I think that's what she falls in love with is his capacity to think of human beings outside of their categories, as she does, as particular persons with particular viewpoints. Something wonderful in the fact that she's, you know, she's come from, she's escaped Nazi Europe, she's survived the war, she's been in a situation that was immensely threatening, and now she's in a place that's, where everything is safe to her, reads as safe, and and part of that, part of that sort of glee seems to be connected to that, and yet she meets this man who's completely unsafe in this situation, you know, who sees every, every man around him wanting to kill him. Mm-hmm. simply for being with her. And she doesn't pick up on his fear. He asks her, aren't you afraid? Aren't you afraid of me? And she's, no, of course not. She doesn't pick up on the fear that he's experiencing. Yes. She she finally recognizes that something's going on and that she'd better listen to him. <laughs> so she does agree to leave the bar and meet him. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't... She, it doesn't seem to occur to her to say what's troubling you. Right, so she's not she's not quite registering that he sees what she doesn't see. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, he's not returning the she's not returning the the sensitivity. Now, later in the novel, we learn a lot more about Carter that he's a former UN official. That he's really an intellectual. He's also a, a drunk and and really in decline in his life. Why do you think we we get so little of that in this opening? We get a lot of the barman. Yes. <laughs> I hadn't remembered how much of the barman and his wonderful scheme to make everybody rich there is, <laughs> there is in, the, in the story. I think it's very interesting that Laurie Siegel starts the novel, because this excerpt is the actual beginning, with a funny story. I mean, there's, there's humor throughout the novel, but it's very serious. And she starts it by introducing her characters so that you see them to a degree off to the side with the town and the barman and his idea and all that as the primary subject. Mm-hmm. And in the conversation with the barman, Carter is, is mocking him. You know, he's saying, how about we take the Social Security and we give everyone this, yeah. you know, lump sum... The barman's not picking up on it. Ilk the barman not... doesn't understand. I think he's confused. He doesn't understand that he's being made fun of. Yeah, and Ilka doesn't understand either. So no. all of this humor is, is really self-entertainment on yes. Carter's part. Yes. Well, and, and, and the reader. The reader is, maybe that's one reason I like the story so much. It, it welcomes the reader in. Mm-hmm. It, it, you're, the, the author keeps winking at the reader. There's also a wonderful implication in this idea that in order to make it in this land of opportunity, you first have to be kind of broken up and have your legs smashed, yes. <laughs> your face scarred, but then yes. you can really make it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a wonderful introduction to, yes. to the yes. real America. This is, this is America, yeah. Yeah. 
Now, Carter, of course, was, was also based on a real person, a, a man called Horace Caton, who was a UN official, who was a, an intellectual and was Laurie Siegel's introduction to New York uh, society in some ways. Do you think we should read this differently if we know how much is drawn from real life? No, <laughs> I don't. I, 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 I don't ever really like to think too much about how to the mm -hmm. degree to which fiction is drawn from real life. I, I think it stands on its own as fiction. What do you think that uh, that Siegel did in in this story or in this book that that other people weren't doing? Was there something kind of revolutionary about it? It's unusual for Americans to write about black people and white people together. I think that's very important and an important thing to do, and not too many people do it, especially white authors. I think of black authors who do it, but not so many white authors. And that's still, we still don't have very much of that. So I think that's that's one thing. In some of her other work, she she uses a kind of magical realism where things happen that are literally impossible. And there's none of that in this book, but she writes at, at kind of edge of reality quite often so that she's kind of exaggerating and getting away with it. And you you know she's exaggerating, and that's part of the joke. I, I think that's quite unusual, and she... I think she does it in everything, and she does it. She does it here too. I mean, in a certain sense, we could say, "Well, this isn't very likely to happen." Well, so who cares? <laughs> I mean, and, and I think we say "who cares" in the same way that we say it about a, a non-realistic story in which, you know, birds talk or something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the verisimilitude is maybe beside the point. Yeah. Yeah, and she seems quite at ease with what can what can happen, what can't. I mean, with with point of view, it's entirely an Ilka's point of view, and then every once in a while, it isn't. And we mm -hmm. we learn a couple of occasions what Carter thinks, and then there's that moment when it kind of backs away, and it's almost like a voiceover in a film, and it says that the other men in, in the restaurant could see. That's where we know for sure that he's a Negro if we haven't caught on yet. You know, yeah. could see a Negro and a, and a white woman and so on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's a, actually one of the most surprising moments for me in the story when we're suddenly on the outside seeing what another character sees. Yes. Or a non-character. Yes. Yeah. yeah. She's able to slip in and out of those moments yes. gracefully. <laughs> yes. She, she, she gets away with it. Maybe she... Seems quite bold as a, just technically as a writer. Mm -hmm. Do you think that she had any uh, influence on you and your own work? Yes, I, I mean I had I had never written a novel, and I when I read the story and then the novel, I I thought I could write a novel, and I don't really know why, but I'm quite sure it's true. I I remember thinking it, and I think it really happened. Um, <laughs> so and maybe it had to do with the kind of people she wrote about who are not exactly like the people in my life, but close enough, mm -hmm. uh, New York, Jewish, immigrant. Maybe it was the tone, that literalness. Mm -hmm. something, something made me think, oh, I could, I, could, I could do that. I could write a novel. <laughs> so you have a lot to thank her for. I do. I do. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Alice. Thank you very much for having me on this. Laurie Siegel is the author of five books of fiction, including Shakespeare's Kitchen and Half the Kingdom, as well as several children's books. You can hear Jennifer Egan read her story, The Reverse Bug, on another episode of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast. Alice Madison's novels include When We Argued All Night and Nothing Is Quite Forgotten in Brooklyn. She's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 1985. You can download more than 100 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. On the Author's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Author's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. You can also hear readings of New Yorker fiction on NewYorker.com and on the New Yorker apps, available from the App Store or from Google Play. 
tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Alex Barron and Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>